Hey, 1 Samuel chapter 30 is where our passage is this morning. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 30. I love all the Bible, but I just think there's some great stories in the Old Testament that just have some wonderful principles for us. We're going to look at uh, uh, a story of the, out of the life of David and uh, just teaches us some great things about how to respond in a crisis. And so I love this story, find it very practical. And I think there's just these three truths out of the life of David in the way that he responded uh, to a crisis that we're going to look at. And we're going to read that passage of scripture in just a moment. But I want to share a story with you. Do you guys have these stories like, like Lynn and I do, where whenever your family's together, you kind of tell these stories and and uh, you've heard them, like, probably told them lots of times, but they're kind of family favorites, and you laugh about them. And well, we have stories like that, too. Do you mind if I tell one to you? Some, thank you very much. Um, it actually has something to do with this, the message, so I'm not just telling you a story. But it really happened. Uh, this was a number of years ago. Our kids are married, and we have grandkids now. But this is when they were younger, early days of our church. And uh, we'd been at the services, and uh, we had something going on at the church, I don't even remember now, that afternoon. So it was about supper time that we were actually on our way home uh, from church. It's one of those days. And our kids were young, and they said, like kids do, hey, mom and dad, can we go eat at McDonald's? Yeah, sure, we can go eat at McDonald's. There's one near our house. So I remember pulling in there, and we went inside. And the thing that really stuck out about it to me was, I don't know, McDonald's always seems busy. And I just remember when we walked in there to get our food, there was like us and these two high school, college age boys that were sitting at a table over here, and that was it. So we got our food, and I remember our family, I don't know why we did, but we went over to the other side, and we sat down, and Lynn and I were on this side of the table so I could see these guys, and our kids are here, and we're talking, eating, just having a great time. And all of a sudden, I noticed these two other boys, I don't know, high school, college age, came walking over into the restaurant and walked over to these two guys and started talking to them. But the thing that really stuck out to me too was what they were carrying in their hands. And uh, one of them had like, I don't know, two by four maybe that was about that long. And one of the guys had a lead pipe that was maybe about that long in their hands. And I just kind of thought, yeah, they're doing a little work outside or something. I guess they're, <laughs> I don't know, I was kind of naive. And uh, so anyway, eating, having a great time kind of every once in a while looking over there, they're talking when all of a sudden, remember the kid with the two by four? He wound up with that thing and all of a sudden he swings it and he just clears that table. There's Big Macs and French fries and drinks flying all over the restaurant. And have you ever been in a moment where you see something and you can't believe you're seeing what you're seeing and you're just kind of like, that was me. I was like, I can't, I can't believe he just did that. Well, he wasn't finished. In a moment, that kid winds up with that two by four again, but this time he comes down with it and he hit one of the boys on the back of the neck that was sitting in his chair. He hit him so hard, he knocked him right out of his chair. He's laying on the floor and I'm like, I can't believe that just happened. In an instant, my wife Lynn, five foot three, is out of her chair, running across the restaurant, yelling, you boys stop that, you boys stop that right now. And, and right across the restaurant, and there she is standing nose to nose with these two guys who, by the way, still have those weapons in their hands going, you boys stop that, you boys stop that right now. As soon as I could get out from under our table, I... 
Somebody had to watch the kids. No, actually, Lynn and I are standing there like face to face with these two guys. And you know, like, you know how you have that moment where you wonder, I don't know what they're going to do next. Maybe they're going to hit us. I don't know. But Lynn's saying, you boys stop that right now. We look at each other and they decide we're out of here. And they ran out the door that they had come in. They're running towards their car to take off. My wife wasn't finished. She ran outside after them, but she was thinking. And as they drove away, she got their uh, license plate number and she memorized it. And so we walked back to the restaurant. The manager comes up to us. She gave the license plate number to the manager. He, she called the cops. The police went and we found out a couple of weeks later, they found those two boys, they arrested them and they got what they deserved. And my wife was amazing. <laughs> now listen, that story could have gone a lot of different ways, right? But that story had a good ending for this fact. Because in that crisis, my wife acted decisively and immediately that brought about a good response. Now listen, I didn't come here from Chicago to tell you a story about McDonald's, although that really happened. The point is this. The scripture tells us that crisis is going to come into our life, even as followers of Jesus, right? It's not if it's going to happen. It's when it's going to happen. And here's the point that David's life makes to us this morning as we're going to read this story and what I want to communicate to you, and it's simply this. God wants to use that crisis to accomplish his good purposes in our life if we too will act decisively and immediately, but most importantly, and if we respond biblically to that situation. David found himself in a crisis here in 1 Samuel chapter 30, and he teaches us these three amazing, simple, but significant responses that allowed God to use this crisis to accomplish his purposes and good in his life. I'm telling you, loved ones, listen, if we'll seek to apply these three lessons in our life too, I'm telling you, God can use even a crisis in our life to accomplish his purposes. So 1 Samuel chapter 30, we're going to go through the whole chapter. Now some of you right now are freaking out, but don't. We're going we're gonna to make it in you know, the time that we have, but let me just read the first six verses just to give you a little context in what's going on in this story. 1 Samuel chapter 30, starting at verse 1, it says this. Now when David and his men came to Ziglag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziglag. They had overcome Ziglag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. Key verse, here it comes. And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. Key phrase, here it is. But David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. Okay, that's just the first six verses. There's 
three principles we're going to see here in the chapter, how to respond in a crisis. But before we do that, let's just bow in a word of prayer. Father, it's good to be in your house here this morning with your people. And even Lynn and I, even though we're from Chicago, we feel very much at home here and worshiping with these loved ones and lifting our voices and reminding ourselves who you are and what you want to be in our life. And thank you, Lord, for the great God and faithful God that you are. And now, Lord, we want to turn to worshiping you through the teaching of your word this morning. So I pray that you would remove any distractions from our heart and mind that would get us focused on that and away from you today. God, I pray that we would hear from you. That's what we need more than anything, that we would hear from you through your word this morning. And so help us to lean into your word today. God, I pray, I'm just your messenger, but I pray you would fill me with your spirit. I pray you would empower me to communicate your word in a very clear and practical way that would accurately reflect this text this morning. And so, God, help us to learn these important principles from the life of David. How should we respond when we find ourselves in a crisis? So I ask these things now, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, three truths. They come right out of the the scripture, and here's the first one. So how should we respond in a crisis, just like David did? And here's the first point. In the crisis, I must remember who God is. That's really, really important. In the crisis, I must remember who God is. Now, some of you are saying, okay, where are you getting that from? Well, let me go through these verses, and you'll see it's coming right out of Scripture. But let me also start by giving you a little context to what was going on here in the story. So David and his men are actually returning from a battle that they never got to fight. They've just finished walking 75 miles in three days. And so you can just imagine they're tired and they're hungry and they're looking forward to being reunited with their wives and children once again. But as David and his men kind of come up and over the hill and ready to come down into their homes, there's no wives waiting to meet them. There's no children running to greet them. Everything and everyone is gone. Only the sound of the smoldering ashes of their burnt-out homes break the silence as David and his men stand there in shock. What happened and who would do such a thing? Well, tell me, church. The answer is right there in verse 1. Who did this? Who did it? What's it say? Yeah, the Amalekites. Now, you know, it would be so easy just to kind of pass right over that and, oh, the Amalekites, I wonder who they were. They play a very significant role in this story, and it's important to know a little bit about who they were. And so let me tell you a little bit about these people called the Amalekites. The Amalekites were actually a nomadic kind of group of people. They were descendants of Esau, and they had actually been longtime enemies of the people of Israel, dating all the way back to the time of the Exodus. In fact... They were the very first nation to attack Israel once they had left Egypt at a time when Israel was weak and vulnerable. Now some of you will remember this, that even though God gave Moses and the people of Israel a miraculous victory over the Amalekites that day, do you remember this? God made a promise to Moses and the people of Israel and it was this. One day 
I'm going to take my vengeance upon the Amalekites for what they tried to do to you today. Now listen. That was a promise that was made a long time ago and it, it, it communicates an important principle and it's this. We're going to see it in this story. God is faithful to his promises. Do you believe that? This story is going to communicate this so clearly. God is faithful to his promises. Listen, God does not forget. God does not overlook the promises that he makes to his, us and his people uh, in his word. And even though a hundred years had passed since God had made that uh, promise to Moses and the people of Israel, God was about to raise up here in this story in 1 Samuel 30. He's about to raise up David to be the instrument of his vengeance, the fulfillment of that promise. Listen, some of you need to hear this fresh again today. God is faithful to his promises. He is. He doesn't overlook it. He doesn't forget He'll accomplish it in his way, in his timing. And so back into the story. So David's got a crisis on his hands. Do you see that? I mean, not only is his own heart broken and grieving for his own wives and children. He doesn't know where they are. He doesn't know if they're alive or not. He doesn't know who has them. His, his, his heart is just breaking and grieving. You can only imagine if you were in his shoes. But listen, not only is that going on in his life, listen, these 600 men, men who had fought with him, men who had followed him, men who had been faithful to him, now in their own grief, because their wives and children are gone, as the scripture says, in their grief, somebody's got to pay. It's somebody's fault. David, it's your fault, and we're going to stone you. We're going to kill you. David has a crisis on his hands. Do you see it? But here's what I love. I love his response. This is so instructive and significant to us. Do you see what it says in verse 6? In the face of the crisis, what does David do? I love this. What does it say? It says at the end of verse 6, he strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Don't you love that? He strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Key word there is he strengthened himself in his God. The word strengthened there means to grow strong, to grow courageous, to grow mighty. Listen, in the face of the crisis, David didn't become discouraged. David didn't become disillusioned. David didn't become fearful. The scripture says he actually grew strong and courageous and mighty in the face of that crisis. But listen, he didn't find that in himself. The courage and strength was found in who? Point. Yeah, in his God. As David, what did he do? He remembered, that's what it's communicating, he remembered who his God was, his character, how he revealed himself in his word, and how David had experienced his God in the past. And it strengthened him to face the crisis head on. Now there's a principle here, and it's this. A right response in the crisis has everything to do with right and biblical thinking. Do you see that? Let me just say it again. 
a right response in the crisis has everything to do with right and biblical thinking about who God is and how he works and how he's revealed himself and how he accomplishes his purposes in our life, even in the midst of the crisis. And as David reminded himself, as he remembered who his God was, it strengthened him, it gave him courage, even in the face of that crisis, that God will be faithful, I I trust you. And loved ones, that's what we need to do in the crisis in our life. Now here's a question that came to my mind. I mean, it's great to say that, and some of you, I see many of you are nodding your head. But what are some of the things about our God that should strengthen our faith even in a crisis? Well, we could fill the screens with lots of things. I chose five. And so here's just five things about God that he's revealed to about himself and his word that should encourage us and strengthen us in a crisis. Number one, I will not fear. God is always with me. It's the promise of his presence. Aren't you thankful for that? Deuteronomy chapter 31 and verse six. Here's another truth about God. I will not doubt. God is always in control. It's the promise of his sovereignty. Proverbs chapter 3 and verses 5 and 6. Here's a third great promise. I will not despair. God is always good. It's not just what he does. It's who he is at his core. He's a good God. It's the promise of his goodness. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. Here's a fourth thing that encourages us. I will not falter. God is always watching. Think about that. He's always watching. He's aware. It's the promise of his attentiveness. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. And just the last one I jotted down. I will not fail. Love it. God is always victorious. It's the promise that he sees beginning to end. Isaiah chapter 54 and verse 17. Great truths. Great example from the life of David. So I don't know. Many of you I don't know. Is it possible there's people in the room sitting here that you're walking through a crisis right now? For some of you, maybe it's a relational crisis. There's a trust that's been broken and a love that you wonder, can can that ever be restored? And there's a lot of pain and hurt and where's this going, God? I don't know, for some of you, maybe it's a financial crisis you're facing. I've lost a job, and boy, bills are piling up, and I don't know how we're going to make ends meet. And, or for some of you, maybe it could be in the, maybe it's a medical crisis. You know, you've just been to the doctor, and you've just received some news that seems uncertain. I don't know what the future's like. And listen, loved ones, learn this in important, important, and significant truth from the life of David. When I face the crisis, the first thing I must do is I must remember who my God is. But there's a second principle here as the story goes on. Look at verses 7 to 9. Just let's read on in the story. And it says this, And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. 
What's that? Anyway, we'll come back to that. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out, and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Bezor, where those who were left behind stayed. Okay, second principle. I think it's so clear from these verses, and it's this. In the crisis, I must respond to what God says. Could it be any clearer? In the crisis, I must respond to what God says. I love this about David. Like, I don't know about you men, you might be thinking about this, so if somebody took my wife and my children and I thought they were somewhere out there, like, what's there to stop and think about? Of course the response is, we're going to get them. Come on, guys, let's go and get back what is rightfully ours. That's not what David did. Even when the response seemed obvious, what did he do? It says before he did anything, he inquired of the Lord, Lord, what do you want me to do? I wish I could stand up here this morning and say, yeah, I always do that in the crisis. I always do that in a situation. I always inquire of the Lord first. I don't, to my own shame. And maybe you feel like that too. David's, David's, again, he's modeling something here to us. Now, some of you are saying, okay, I hear you saying inquire of the Lord, but how do, how, where are you getting that from? Well, you notice it said, David said, bring me the ephod. Okay. How many of you knew what an ephod was when I read that? Or how many of you were just kind of shaking your heads going, what on earth was that? And why was he asking for it? All right. Here's what an ephod is. An ephod was like a sleeveless vest that the high priest would wear over his ceremonial robes. And on the front of that vest was, there was a little pouch And in that pouch were these two little stones called the Urim and Thummim. And that's what David was after. You see, they didn't have the whole scripture like we have today. They didn't have the Holy Spirit, in a sense, leading them like we have today. And so God had made available to the leaders of Israel uh, different instruments that they could use to determine God's will. One of those things was the Urim and Thummim. Now, what were they? So they were like these two little flat stones that had identical markings on each side. On one of the sides of the stone was the marking of Urim, which meant to be cursed. On the other side of the stone was the marking Thummim, which meant to be perfect. So what they would do is, and this is what David did, he would take those stones, almost like dice in his hands, and they would roll them onto the ground. And based on how those stones turned up, that was how they were determining God's will and what he wanted them to do. And this is what I love about the story. When those two stones turned up, obviously thumbing, which meant to be perfect, God was saying, I'm in this. Pursue them. Go after them. You're going to rescue your wives and your children. Everything that's been taken, you're going to get it back. Trust me, David. I'm in it. Do it. And I love David's response once the answer was clear. Because what did the scripture say? What was David's response when God said go? You can say it. He went. It's simple. But he and his 600 men, they went. There was no questioning. There was no doubting. 
There was no arguing with God. There was just total, complete, and immediate obedience. Do you see that, loved ones? Do you see what David's modeling for us? In the crisis, I must do exactly what God says. Okay, so let's make this a little bit practical to our lives today. And so I was thinking, I can think of a lot of good reasons that David could, give, could have given to God as to, okay, God, maybe we'll go, but I think there's a few re- things we got to work through first. Like, how about this one? God, you know, my uh, men and I just finished walking 75 miles in three days. We're tired and hungry. We're just not physically ready to do what you're telling us to do. I could get that. Or how about this one? God, we're, we're still grieving in our hearts over, over our wives and our children. We, we don't even know if they're still alive. Like, God, we're just not even emotionally ready to, to do what you're telling us to do. I could understand that. Or how about this one? David could have looked at God and said, God, we don't even know who has them. We don't know how many there are. Uh, If we find them, like, what do we do? What's the plan? How do we get them back? God, we're just not strategically ready. David didn't say any of those things, although all those things were true. When God's word was clear, total and immediate obedience. In the crisis. So I was thinking, still making this practical, so what do we do? No, what do I do sometimes when I'm in a difficult spot, I'm going through a crisis, God's word is really clear, I see what I'm supposed to do. How do I respond? How do you respond? Well, here's some ways that I jotted down. Here's the first one. Oh, sometimes I want to question God's word. Do you do that? Um, God, I see what your word says, but that's just too hard. You ever felt that? Sometimes God's word's just plain. It's hard what he's telling us to do. Oh, here's another one. Oh, we negotiate with God. Have you ever done that one? I've done, okay, God, if you do this, then I'll do that. We negotiate with God. Here's another one. Oh, we rationalize. <laughs> okay, God, I know what your word says, but that's really a hard thing. You'll understand if I kind of go to my own plan B here, kind of take things into my own hands, right? We do that sometimes too. Or here's the last one. I just, I'm ashamed to say it, and I've done this. I just disobey it. God, I, I, I see what, it's clear. I know what you want me to do. It's just hard. It doesn't make sense to me. It's not, it's not what I would do. And so God, thanks a lot for what your word says, but I think I've got, got a plan here. I'm just gonna do what I wanna do. And God says, go ahead. And he lets us as his children often suffer the consequences of the choices that we make when we disobey him. And then we wonder why there's so many Christians today walking around defeated and discouraged in their life Because we won't do what God's word says. I do it too. And so we got to learn this from David in the crisis. We must respond 
to what God says. And so, again, just to make it practical, I was thinking, okay, okay, God, so what are you telling maybe some of us sitting in here today? What is your word telling us to do that we won't do? I don't know, for some of you, maybe, is there a person that you need to forgive? Right now, that maybe that person's face is coming right into your mind. You're going, yeah, but, but you don't know what they did to me and the pain and, and what. It's not fair. And you need to forgive them. It's God's way. It's what his word's telling you to do. Oh, here's another one. Maybe there's a sin that I need to confess. Man, every Sunday or during the week when I'm opening up God's word, his spirit's just fingering that thing in my life and I I don't want to give it up. I don't want to turn from that. I don't want to do that. Listen, loved ones, in the crisis, remember, in the crisis, in everyday life, do what God's words. Confess it, turn from it. I don't know what your thing is, but learn this important principle from David. In the crisis, first of all, remember who your God is. And here's the second thing. In the crisis, when God's word is clear, listen, learn from David. I must respond to exactly what he's telling me to do. That's where the victory is. That's where my strength comes from. But there's another principle I see in this story. It's the third one. And let's just kind of read on the story starting in verse 10. It goes on and says this. But David pursued... He and 400 men, wait a minute, 400? I thought there were 600. Well, we're going to come back to that. 200 men, it explains it right here. 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Bezor. Verse 11, they found an Egyptian in the open country and they brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate. And they gave him water to drink. Now down to verse 13. And David said to him, to whom do you belong and where are you from? He said, I'm a young man of Egypt, a servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. Nice master. Down to verse 15. And David said to him, will you take me down to this band? And he said, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. Here's a third principle. I think, again, it comes clearly from these verses, and it's this. In the crisis, I must receive God's provision. See, once I've remembered who my God is, once I've done the things he's told me to do, now I'm ready to receive God's provision. So how did this happen in the life of David and his men? Well, again, let me just give you a little context here. So David, remember, rolls the stones. God said, they both come up thumbing, says to be perfect. God says, go and pursue them. There's victory here. I'm going to just go and do what I'm telling you to do. David and 600 men leave. So almost one, they're only halfway into the journey to find these Amalekites, whoever has these, their wives and children, they're halfway into the journey. And it says a third of his men. Now think about this. 200 of the 600 men say, I'm too tired to go on. I'm just going to sit here and rest at the at the brook. <laughs> Men, now think about this. Your wife, your children, everything that's dearest to you, you're not sure who's got them and if they're alive or safe or whatever. And 200 of these men say, David, I'm too tired. 
Now, men, how do you think that's going to go with your wife and children when their guys are bringing them back from rescuing them, and you're sitting by the brook and sitting in the shade and drinking some water, and, hey, sweetie, it's great to see you. Hi, kids. Sorry I wanted to come, but I was just too tired to rescue you. How do you think that conversation's going? If I, that conversation would not go well with my wife, Lynn. But the thing that really stuck out to me when you think about that is this. If I was going after everything that was dearest to me, my wife, my children, I'd want all 600 men. I'd think I need every person available. We got to get them. We, we, we got to win this battle. We... Was that David's response? <laughs> David's response was, hey, guys, it's cool. Just, just, just lay here by the brook and get refreshed and when we come back with our wives and children, yours too, we're going to share in the victory with you. It's, it's cool. Now listen. Now don't miss this. Why could David say that? For this reason. Because David's confidence was not in how many men he had. David's confidence was not in the strategy that he had to somehow, somehow come overcome these Amalekites. Who was David's faith in? David's faith was in his God who had already proved himself to be faithful all along. I think David would have gone all by himself because his confidence was not in himself. His confidence was in his God. It's just a great truth there. So then the story goes on. So David and his 400 men leave those guys. They're walking kind of, okay, God, we just believe you're going to lead us to these guys. And as they're walking, they find this guy who's kind of like, passed out, not even sure if he's alive, uh, in the field, and they carry him to David. And they give him food and water and drink, and in a couple of days, the guy seems like he's coming back to life, and this is the part I love about the story. This guy, though, was not stupid. He was smart. And you remember what he said to David and his men? David says, who are you, and will you take us to these men? And he says, if you don't kill me and spare my life, I will take you to the Amalekites. Can you imagine how those words rung in David and his men's ears when they heard the word the Amalekites? I'm telling you, we had great worship here this morning, but can you imagine the worship that happened in David's camp that night as they saw God's faithfulness and his great provision and providing this guy who says, I know exactly where they are and I'll take them to you tomorrow? Can you imagine the worship that was going on that night? But listen, not only that, can you imagine the impact of God's faithfulness that it made in David and his men as they saw God being true to his word and what he had promised? Not only the impact it would make that day, but for the rest of their lives as they saw God as a God who is faithful to his promises and will do what he says. And the story goes on in the verses that we didn't read, and it says the next morning David and his 400 men came down that hill and surprised attacked those Amalekites who had been drinking and partying and worshiping their false gods and thinking that they had delivered the... And it says that David and his men killed all those Amalekites except for 400 young men who escaped on camels and David got his wives and their children and everything that was taken God was faithful to do everything he had promised to do 
Now, when I come to that part in the story, I just feel like I can close my Bible and go, I'm good. I'm good. God's great. He's awesome. He's faithful. And he is all those things. But there is a principle here as we think about in the crisis, get ready to receive God's provision. Because here's the principle that I see, and it's this. God's provision usually follows our obedience. Have you seen that in your own life? We see it all through Scripture. God's provision always follows our obedience. I often wish, why can't it just be the other way around? You know, God provides, and then God, I'll do everything you want me now to do. Uh -uh, Uh-uh, uh-uh. God usually goes, no, no, it's a faith walk. Trust me, walk by faith, do the things I'm telling you to do, and then watch my provision in your life. Now, here's the thing. I see two things about God's provision in this story, and it's this. Both of them are true. Here's the first one. God's provision always comes according to his timing. Do you see that? God's provision always comes according to his timing. Put yourself in these men's shoes again, like these 400 men and David, they're just walking. It doesn't tell us exactly how many days that they were doing that, but it seems like there was a period of time that they were just walking, believing God would do what he said he would do. And do you wonder, though, is, just think about it. As some of those men were walking, do you think sometimes, as the days went on, and they weren't finding anything, that there was some conversation going on between some of those men going, are we stupid? Are we fools? Are we just on a wild goose chase? Is God really, how's he really going to lead us and provide and do what he said? Like, do you think some of that was going on? Yeah, I think so. Probably sometimes as I find myself doing that sometimes. When I'm walking through the crisis and waiting for God's provision, not on my schedule, on my time, but according to his, he's never late. His way is always perfect. We trust him. He sees beginning to end. He's at work. God's provision always comes according to his timing, not mine. But here's the second thing. God's provision always comes his way. God's provision always comes his way. God's provision always meets our needs, not our wants. There's a big difference there. God's provision always meets our needs, not our wants. You see, we believe that we have a God who sees beginning to end. He will always do what's best, even when we don't understand, because we can only see what's in front of us. And sometimes that's hard. Let me say it this way. Listen to this carefully. God's provision does not mean that we'll always get our wife and kids back, if I can use this illustration. Do you know what I mean? That's not always. It was here. That's what he had promised David to do, and he was faithful to do it. But God's provision in our life can show up faithfully exactly what we need, but not always the way that we think. Let me give you some examples. Here's things I've experienced in my own life. Sometimes God's provision is a greater sense of his presence in my life as I walk through the crisis. Like just that greater sense of intimacy and that he's with me and he's at work and I can trust. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, here's another thing. 
Sometimes God's provision in that crisis is, is his grace. Well, what's God's grace? It's, it's simply this. It's God giving to me what I need exactly when I need it. How I have found him to be faithful so often in those crisis moments to give me exactly what I need when I need it. Here's a third thing I just jotted down. Sometimes God's provision is increased strength. Man, sometimes we're walking. If you had told me before I walked through the crisis, I I would go, I can't do that. I haven't got got what it takes. But then sometimes we're coming out the other end and we look back and we go, God's strength walked me through that. He was so faithful. I couldn't have done that on my own. It's a greater sense of his presence, his grace, and his strength. In the crisis, we must be ready to receive God's provision. So let me just give you another personal example of that as we kind of close. The year was 1997. This was a number of years ago. I could give you lots of different stories, but this is just one that really always has stuck out in my mind. The year was 1997, and uh, we had just moved into our first church home in Rolling Meadows. Does that sound familiar to you guys? You're just getting ready to do that. And we had moved in. We've been in the building for now about two years, and we just built what we could afford. And uh, I remember the, I remember the um, uh, gym walls only were about like that high and the balls were always bouncing out over top, but nobody cared because we had a gym and a church home and God was using it to reach people and it's what you're looking forward to. But God was blessing the church too and we were growing and we needed more, a bigger worship center and we needed more children's space and we needed more offices for increased staff. How are we going to meet the needs of God? The way that God was growing the church was a, a good thing, but a challenging thing. I remember that these people who own these big billboards, you see them along expressways, right? And they came to our church and they said, hey, could we put one of those billboards on your property? In fact, the thing would hang almost right over the building. They said, if you'll let us put it there, we're going to pay you a boatload of money. And I remember when that was presented to us as elders, we all went, that's it. There's the answer. That's God's provision. That will give us the money we need to build up the things that we need in the church. Except for one elder who said, nope, I don't think we should do that. (laughs) What? Why? And I remember him saying, because... We don't know what they're going to put on that billboard. And and, and what if that thing's right over our church and on that billboard something that would be absolutely contrary to what we're teaching our own? Well, we're all like, well, we'll come up with policies. We'll put things in place so that we have some control over that. Certainly there's a way to do that. So we had a good elder board chairman. He said, you know, I don't sense a consensus here. So let's take a week and pray. I remember thinking, man, Sure. Yeah, that's a good idea. Let's pray. Let's pray that guy changes his mind is what I was thinking. (laughs) Of course. So we went away and we all just kind of prayed. A week later, we came back to our elder meeting. Never forget it. That Wednesday afternoon, like we always did. And we started going around the table and everybody just shared what they thought God was telling them to do. And I remember to a man, every one of us was going, I don't think we should do it. God's changed my heart. I don't, think it's, I don't think we should. And have you ever been in one of those moments where you hear what's coming out of your mouth 
And in your heart, you're going, I can't believe I'm saying this. But that's what God seemed to be telling us. And so we just, we didn't do it. So I remember walking out of the meeting going like, that was crazy, but that's, that seemed, that's what, what God wanted us to do. That's where my confidence was. And so I forget how many weeks after this, six weeks I think it was, something like that. There was a church in our area. We didn't even know it. That had shut down. It's kind of a sad story. They had, someone lost their vision. They sold their building. They sold all their resources. They were doing this little study as a group of people go where God is at work. And they had started coming to our church because they believed God was at work there. They had been attending for a number of weeks. We didn't even know they were there. But their elder board chairman and their pastor asked to meet with our Pastor James and our elder board chairman. And you know what they said? They told him the story. We sold our church. Kind of told him the story. We sold everything we have. We've been coming to your church. We believe God is at work here. And we just feel led that if you'll just let us be a part of our, your church, we just feel led to lay down the money at your feet. And you know how much money it was? One million dollars. And that was God's provision. And that was the seed money that was used to start building out the facility that we see in Rolling Meadows today. Listen, loved ones, please hear me. God doesn't always lay a million dollars at our feet. But when we as elders had the courage to remember who our God was, to do what we believed he was telling us to do, then we waited for his provision that came his way and his timing. And listen, that's the way he wants to work in our lives in those three ways. Trust him. Believe him. He's a faithful, good God who you can trust in the crisis.